Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. I understand your plan, your plan for our lives, and your plan for human history. And now, Father, we pray that as we study your word this evening, that the challenges that we find in this particular passage will uh, ring true to us, and God the Holy Spirit will make it real to our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Revelation chapter 22, verse 6. Last time we covered a good bit of this. We're coming to the end of our study. This is the epilogue to the book of Revelation. And what's important is, as we get to this section, is to understand that there is a a time shift that occurs beginning in verse 6 in terms of the uh, time frame of the audience of the book. As we've looked at most of this book, it has been focusing on the future, but at the very beginning, the focus was on a present tense environment with John as he talks about being on the Isle of Patmos, and suddenly the... resurrected uh, Lord Jesus Christ appears to him on the island, and then there is the unfolding of the various visions related to uh, the uh, future of uh, not only the church age in chapters 2 and 3, but also the future events, still future events, of the uh, tribulation, uh, messianic kingdom, and the eternal state. As we have gone through this book, I pointed out many times that A focal point here is that judgment is coming. That is really the theme of Revelation, that there is a time when God is going to bring all things to an end and there will be an accountability for all creatures. There will be an accountability for the angels. There will be an accountability for uh, mankind. There's an accountability judgment for Israel, judgment of the nations, and judgment for believers, which takes place, church-age believers, which takes place during the uh, after the rapture, before the uh, tribulation begins at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, the message that was given at the end of each of those seven letters to the seven churches was a present tense challenge to believers in those congregations that they had some things that they were doing right, some things that they were doing wrong, and in relationship to the things that they were doing wrong, there was a challenge that they needed to change. That's the meaning of the word repent. And that those who were overcomers, uh, which is not a term that applies to every Christian, but applies to those who are uh, moving forward and advancing in their uh, spiritual life, those who are growing and maturing, that for those who are overcomers, there would be special rewards, various categories of rewards and blessings to those who, uh, who would overcome. Now, as we come to the conclusion to the, to the, uh, to the book, in this epilogue, there is a return to that challenge. There's a sense of urgency that the writer is communicating that the coming of Christ is soon. It could be today. It could be uh, next week. It could be um, in a month or two. But the question that is really being addressed at the end is, are you ready? If Jesus were to return tonight, are you ready? 
If Jesus were to return tomorrow, are you ready? If God is going to start bringing the all things in history to a conclusion, when that begins, then then everything unfolds fairly rapidly. That's why, this, as I pointed out last time, one of the words that is used is uh, the Greek word taku or takus, indicating rapidly that once. The dominoes begin to fall, as it were. They fall rapidly, one after the other, in terms of the of the end times events. So the question that is addressed here is really that that is is behind the scenes. Is if we were to, if the Lord were to come back uh, tonight, are we ready? If we were to die, see whether the Lord comes back. The Lord may not come back for a hundred years, but you may die tonight. You may die in your sleep tonight. You may die in an automobile accident tomorrow. So the question is, are we, are we ready? If you were to die this evening and you're standing before a righteous God and he asks the question, uh, why should I let you into heaven? Uh, what's your answer going to be? And what we saw in our study of Revelation chapter 20 at the end there at the great white throne judgment is that there is a whole segment of members of the human race who believe that somehow they can be good enough in order for God to let them into heaven, that somehow they have contributed enough to society, they have been uh, morally good, ethical in their behavior, they have worked hard, they've been religious, they've, been, uh, they, they've engaged in whatever the rituals of their religion would be, and compared to just lots of other people, they're, they're pretty decent. How in the world could God let these other scumbags into heaven when uh, they're so morally right? And, of course, that's the essential message of Christianity is that no one can measure up to the righteousness of God. I mean, some people get the idea that somehow their good deeds balance out their bad deeds. But just think about this a moment. Just, just a simple little illustration. If you have a perfect driving record, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, you all are Texans. If you all have a perfect driving record and you've never had any sort of traffic infraction in your whole life, and you've never gotten a, received a ticket, you've never run a, a red light or a stop sign, you've never been involved in a traffic accident um, that was your fault, and then one day you're involved in a horrendous traffic accident, you run a red light and there's a horrible collision and there's even a loss of life. You th- and, and that's the only negative thing that you've done. Do you think all of those years of not receiving a ticket weigh against that one act of disobeying the traffic law and causing an accident, perhaps causing a fatality? You think that they balance out in some way that you can go to the judge and say, but judge, I've been driving for 69 years and 11 months, and I have not had a single traffic accident or ticket, and now I've just had this one. Doesn't that sort of balance out so that I'm not guilty? And, of course, we'd say no. What matters is the fact that if you break the law, then that makes you guilty. And this is exactly what the uh, New Testament said. This is what the Apostle Paul uh, argued in uh, the, the, or rather it was James that argued it in the epistle of James, is that if we violate the law in just a small part, we've broken the whole, the whole Mosaic law. That's the same thing that Paul uh, realized in Romans chapter 7, that we've all violated God's standards at some level, and any infraction 
means that we've broken the, broken the law, and then therefore there is a penalty. We can't balance out the, the wrongdoing with that which is right. And so the question at hand is, why should God let us into heaven? He's a righteous God. He's a holy God. He will not or cannot have fellowship with creatures that have uh, a righteousness that is less than his. And so there's only two options, and one is that, that the creature tries to uh, perform in a way that measures up to God's standard, which is absolute perfection, or God is going to be the one to supply the uh, absolute perfection, the righteousness, as a gift. And that is the message of, uh, of the New Testament, and that is that we're not saved by works of righteousness, which we've done, but we're saved according to his mercy. It's by grace that we've been saved through faith, not of our, that, and that not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. It is a free gift. That's the same thing that you see even in the Old Testament with, with Abraham. Genesis 15, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. The issue is belief versus actions. Now, does that mean that actions don't matter? Not at all, because what we see in the end of, at the end of Revelation 22, getting into heaven or getting salvation is one thing. That is a free gift. But in terms of additional blessings that uh, are handed out at the judgment seat of Christ, additional uh, privileges that occur during the millennial kingdom and beyond, these are based on rewards, and rewards are earned. Salvation is a free gift. A gift is given, and it just simply received. But rewards are something that are based on performance. And so I know as soon as you start talking about that, people start getting a little bit nervous because, once again, the issue is, well, can I really perform to measure up? And, again, God has a grace plan in terms of the believer's life because we ultimately still have that same problem of sin. We still fail. We still mess up. And there's a grace provision uh, to deal with that. But, unfortunately, a lot of people just don't understand either grace at salvation or grace in terms of the uh, spiritual life after salvation. The Old Testament said that, all of our works of righteousness are as filthy rags in Isaiah. So there's no way we can do anything to measure up to God's standard. It is just a free gift. He gives us the righteousness of Christ at salvation. And we're going to see that this plays a major role. If you don't understand that, then you're going to have a lot of difficulty with some of the things that are said at the last part of this uh, of this book in this epilogue, the difference between the free gift of salvation, which is emphasized down in verse uh, verse 20, rather in, um, not 20, but uh, 17, let him who thirsts come, whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. And then, and that is contrasted uh, with, <clears throat> with rewards. So that's the, that's the, urgency of the message is that we can't just become complacent in our day-to-day lives, but that we must be thinking in terms of that future accountability. Jesus could come tonight, either the rapture or in terms of personal death, and we need to be ready. Now, last time we looked at 
Revelation 22.6, And he, that is the interpreting angel, said to me, that is John, These words are faithful and true, and the Lord, the God of the Spirit of the Prophets, which connects God back to the Old Testament prophets, he's the one who oversaw the uh, transmission of Scripture through the process of inspiration. We saw that in uh, first or Second Peter 1, uh, 20 and 21 sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And again, what we see here is the biblical claim that what is written is not just John writing down his experiences on the island of Patmos, but that the claim is that he, that information is given to him from God. He's not generating this out of his own uh, mentality, his own philosophy, his own ideas, but this is something God has uh, revealed to him. And there's a phrase here that is used at the end of the um, at the end of the verse that is the phrase his bond servants the things which must soon take place. And we have two words I pointed out last time that focus on this idea of some sense of immediacy that this could come very soon. Now some people have made the mistake of thinking that this this meant that. It was expected within the, uh, in some, one sense it was, but this would be fulfilled within the life, lifespan of the writers of Scripture. And that's not the emphasis of these two words. It means that the ingus, the word translated near or close, emphasizes the potential of Jesus coming at any moment, which we refer to as the doctrine of imminency. And takus indicates that when things occur, they will take place uh, very quickly and rapidly once things begin to unfold. And I pointed out that this goes back to Daniel. To understand a lot of what goes on in the book of Revelation, you have to understand the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel uh, gives us the key, the over. Um, the the overarching plan of history that Revelation then completes. And it's very interesting to see the connection uh, <clears throat> between this closing section. There's several things that connect back to Daniel. Daniel is given uh, various uh, <clears throat> dreams and visions that relate to the future. The first dream actually is given to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar sees this dream of this of this idol. Idols made out of metal, uh, gold at the at the head, then silver, uh, bronze, iron, and then the uh, ankles and feet of a mix of clay and iron. And each of these represents some different uh, empire that would come into human history. Now, when Daniel began to write this, it was in approximately 675, 680, something like that, B.C., and Babylon was the empire of that day. But he had no idea uh, what would come come to pass after that. The Media Persian Empire was had not begin to, begun to rise when he wrote this, and so this shows this is a special revelation the prediction of the future events that Daniel wrote far ahead of time. Babylon would be succeeded by the Media persian Empire, which would be then succeeded by the Greek Empire and then uh, the Roman Empire. And then as far as uh, the prophetic timetable of the Old Testament was concerned, God hit the pause button. 
And the pause button had to do with the coming of the Messiah, which is what we studied in terms of the uh, chronology of Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 9. And then there would be a resurrection of this Roman Empire in the end times. Known, and, and this is depicted by the iron and clay mixture of the ankles and the feet, iron representing elements of the former, the old Roman Empire, and then clay, new elements, and so this is referred to as the revived Roman Empire. After interpreting this vision to Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel and Daniel 2.45 said that God had made known what will take place in the future. And then Revelation completes that, that these are the things that must soon take place. And as we'll see when we get down to verse 10 of, uh, of this chapter, John is told, do not seal the words, the prophecy of this book, which is just the opposite of what God instructed Daniel in Daniel 12.3. He said, seal up the words of this prophecy. And we need to understand why is Daniel told to seal up the words of the prophecy and then when the prophetic revelation of God is completed by this uh, uh, final book of the New Testament, then God says, do not seal this up. And so we see that, that Daniel's the beginning, but it's, but it's incomplete and more needs to be added to it before it could be understood. As the remainder of the Old Testament was revealed to other prophets, and then with the revelation in the New Testament, you have a complete revelation now that unfolds the end time events. And so now uh, it's, it's, it's available, now that it can, can be understood. Uh, there have been a lot of debates over uh, the book of Revelation and what it means. Usually people don't like what it means because they know what it means. They want it to mean something else. And uh, so we don't really want to take it at literal or face value. And it, it focuses on, on <clears throat> the events of the future. But because the time becomes short in, in, at the, in the church age, Jesus can come back at any moment. There is this sense of urgency. Don't seal up the words of the prophecy of verse 10, for the time is near. It could happen at any moment. And last time I began with an introduction to the first, I think we covered the first six or seven points in the doctrine of imminency. Now, this is a really important doctrine. Imminency is what we develop as we read the Scripture, read the New Testament. We see that these New Testament writers expected Jesus to return in their lifetime. They had seen the resurrected Jesus. They knew he, he had ascended to heaven. They had all seen him ascend to heaven except for Paul. Paul was saved later uh, when Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus. And it was at that point, after he had been persecuting Christians, that he had a uh, change of mind because he uh, saw, a, saw the resurrected uh, Jesus Christ. And he then put his trust in Jesus as the Old Testament Messiah. And he then became the uh, last apostle, as he said, born as one out of time, uh, out of order. So, um, but Paul expected Jesus to come back in his lifetime. There was that sense of imminency. Now, they knew that before things wrapped up, at the, that there was this future period that Daniel had referred to as the 70th week of Daniel, that seven-year period of time, 
that would be one of the most horrific times in history. Daniel mentions it in Daniel 12, 1 through 3, and says that there's no time like that for his people, that is for Israel. There'd be no time like that in all of history. Jesus repeats that in Matthew 24, that there's no time like this seven-year period in terms of its violence, the warfare. It's the most horrendous time of war in all of human history. And they knew that was coming before Jesus would return to the earth to establish his kingdom. So why did they expect him at any moment if all of those events would have to occur before Jesus returned to the earth? Because they understood that Jesus would be returning for the church prior to those events. And then those events would unfold, and then you would have the second coming of Christ uh, to the earth. And I pointed out through a couple of quotes at the beginning last time that people such as uh, Clement of Rome, this is late first century, indicated that they understood this doctrine of imminency. Uh, quotes from Clement, quotes from uh, Ignatius, uh, who wrote in the um, early part of the second century, the last times are come upon us, recognizing the last times really began with the first advent of Jesus. And they extend until the second coming in that, that establishment. Now, they didn't realize how long that was going to last, 2,000 years now. But they understood that was the last thing to happen prior to uh, Daniel's 70th week. And then also a quote from uh, Irenaeus, that the church will be suddenly caught up from this, and then there would be tribulation. So there's, there's an understanding of uh, implied there of an understanding of a pre-tribulation rapture even in the in the early church. So I went through, a, uh, <clears throat> and I'm just going to review the first seven points very rapidly, that imminency means something that could happen at any moment. It is impending. The OED, the Oxford English Dictionary, defines it as something that it's hanging overhead. It's constantly ready to befall or to overtake one. It's close at hand in its incident. It's certain it will occur, but it is uncertain when it will occur. It could happen at any moment. It's not contingent or dependent on any other events. No other prophecy has to take place before that event occurs. So nothing has to happen. Jesus could come back. He could have come back a thousand years ago. Nothing has to happen first. There's no sign related to the rapture. Signs are all related to the second coming. Second, I pointed out that the doctrine of imminency is important for understanding the pre-tribulation return of Jesus Christ at the rapture. That if nothing has to take place before the rapture, then all of those events that occur immediately preceding the return of Christ are events that have to happen after the rapture. If, uh, in other words, if we're, if, if those events have to take place before Jesus Christ can return, then we're not looking for Jesus Christ. We're, we should be looking for the Antichrist. He would have to come first, and then we would know that the coming of Christ would be near. Uh, but that's not what the New Testament teaches. The rapture, the New Testament teaches, is the uh, translation, and I did it, hit it too fast, the translation of living believers to heaven without experiencing death in a moment of time. Jesus will come in the clouds for the church, and we believe that this occurs before the tribulation period. Here's a little timeline to help you with that. We, we are in the current church age, which occurred 
on uh, the day of Pentecost in the uh, 33 A.D., 40 days after Jesus, or 50 days after uh, after first fruits, after Jesus ascended to heaven. I mean, after the uh, resurrection, rather, and that's the time just after Jesus ascended to heaven, and then the church age extends till the till the rapture, and then it's followed by the tribulation period of seven years, and then Jesus returns to the earth and establishes kingdom. Uh, for the millennium. So the rapture will occur before the tribulation and includes all church age believers. Fourth point was that the purpose of the doctrine of imminency is to keep each believer in a constant state of expectancy. We're to be looking, waiting, watching, hoping for the return of Christ, that we might be ready and prepared, that we not, not be ashamed at his coming. We have to constantly be uh, ready. So fifth point, believers are to look for the blessed hope. We're to look for the Savior, we're to watch for the Savior, and we are to wait for the Savior. We're looking for Jesus Christ, not the Antichrist. We're looking for Jesus Christ. We're not expecting Armageddon. Uh, no Christians that I know of are looking forward to uh, the battle of Armageddon unless, of course, they don't believe that, that Jesus is coming first. Then, of course, that's, that's the only time they have any clue as to what's going to happen. But that is not what we believe. We are to follow the admonitions in uh, Luke 12, that we're to be dressed in readiness, keeping our lamps lit. We never know what time the master will return. That's the point of the parable in Luke 12. I'm just, I'm not going to read through that again this time. Uh, Matthew 24:36 states, of the day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. This is because even though Jesus and his deity is, is omniscient, there is, a, there is a division of labor, we might say, within the Trinity. And in his humanity, Jesus has not been given that as uh, information that is related to his mission on the earth. Sixth point, uh, no prophecy between the baptism of the Spirit and rapture means that the rapture is imminent. It could occur at any time. No one knows the day or the hour. And seventh point, while the rapture is imminent, the second advent is not. Before the second advent occurs, there are many prophecies which must occur, such as the rapture, the tribulation, the judgment seat of Christ, the three series of judgments that occur during the tribulation period. All of that has to occur before the second coming of Christ. So it's not imminent. But the coming of Christ for the church is imminent. So that's why the church fathers, I mean, that's why the apostles believed that, that uh, Jesus could come at any moment. But there's always the skeptics. And Second Peter, Peter recognized this, saying in Second Peter 3.3, 3, Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For all things continue as they, as they always have. And that's Second uh, Peter 3, 4. These things go on and on uh, just like they always have. So why do you think Jesus is coming back? It's been 2,000 years. Come on, get a life. Let's, uh, let's go play golf. Uh, John 14, Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Now, where will Jesus be? He'll be in heaven. 
So he's going to come, according to this passage, he will come and receive us unto himself so that we can be where? On earth or in heaven? In heaven, where he is. So this is actually a passage that teaches the pre-trib rapture. We will return to the earth later, but initially we will go to heaven to be with him, judgment seat of Christ, and the wedding feast. All of that occurs while the tribulation takes place upon the earth. Jesus says in Revelation 22.12, Behold, I'm coming quickly. I'll come rapidly. My reward is with me. That's talking about the judgment seat of Christ. Second, uh, I mean, excuse me, First Corinthians, chapter three, uh, <clears throat> verses. Uh, I think it's about verses nine through twelve. Uh, the judgment seat of Christ. Second Corinthians, uh, chapter five, verses uh, five through eight. All these passages deal with the judgment seat of Christ. This is not talking about the end judgment. This is talking about the rewarding of believers when Jesus comes. So that's the urgency at the end of the book of Revelation. We're to be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. See, on the one hand, we have to be patient, waiting, ready, but it's at hand. It's, it's near. It uh, could come at any time. In fact, in James 5.9, he says the judge is standing right at the door. His coming is imminent. Uh, Titus 2.13 is another key passage. We're looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this is talking about uh, the rapture again. Uh, again, Philippians 4, 5 says that the Lord is near. His coming is near. So again and again, we have this emphasis on the imminency. No one can expect Christ's coming to be delayed. Um, we can't say, well, I hope it won't come. The time is set. We just don't know when it's going to be. And there's nothing that we can do about that date. Uh, no date can be set. We can't go bury ourselves in Scripture like there have been people down through the through the ages who've done that. Back in the early 19th century, there were uh, various groups that would go. Uh, they would be told that Jesus was going to come back on a certain date. They would go uh, sell everything or they would spend, go on a spending spree and buy, go into debt or whatever. And then they would go to a mountaintop and wait for Jesus to come back. Nothing would happen. Uh, you can't set a date. There was a guy in 1988 named Wisnut who wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. So the date came and went. Oops. So he revised his book and came out with another book, 89 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 89. So there's always somebody who's going to try to set a date. After that, it didn't go into a third revision. Uh, no prophecy needs to be fulfilled before the rapture can take place, so it can take place at any moment. But we have to remember that there's nothing we can do to set that. Now, there's this 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 myth that goes around out there some somewhere that thinks that uh, evangelicals are trying to get Jews back into Israel because if they can get all the Jews back into the land, then Jesus will come back. And that's just the silly, silliest thing you ever heard of. Nobody believes that. I've never heard anybody teach that, any Christian teach that. Uh, 
It's just this idea that, that somehow that Christians think that they can manipulate God. That's just nonsense. Christians believe that the date, the time has been set. There's nothing we can do about it. We can't hurry it up. We can't delay it. Uh, it's going to happen when God says it's going to happen and when he said it, and that's, that's it. That, so uh, you could get every Jew in the world back into Israel for a thousand years, and Jesus isn't going to come back any sooner. And you may not have any back in the land at all, and Jesus could still come back. That's not a prerequisite at all. So Jesus is going to come back when he's going to come back, and there's nothing we can do to uh, hurry it up. Again, in Revelation 22, 7, um, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Again, we see this emphasis on being uh, being ready, that there is a, a nearness, there's an immediacy, because the coming of Christ uh, is, uh, is imminent. It could take place at, uh, at any moment. Now, when we come to our verse here in Revelation 22.7, the next verse, we started with 6 last time, and we ended with the first part of 22.7, Behold, I am coming uh, quickly. The second part of this gives us a, a the sixth of seven blessing statements that are in the uh, book of Revelation. Uh, the speaker here, though, is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a parenthetical statement, and it is in, interjected after uh, the statement of the of the angel in verse six. It's important to. Uh, pay attention to who's speaking in each of these verses. The angel is speaking in verse 6. Jesus is speaking in verse 7. John is speaking in verse 8. Then the angel again in verse 9, uh, 10, and 11. So we have to uh, follow the speakers here. Jesus, uh, again, in a sense of urgency, uh, injects verse 7. Behold, I am coming quickly. Behold, uh, uh, blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now, this is it comes at the end, at the um, at the epilogue of the book, and at the beginning of the book, there's a very similar statement that was given in Revelation one three. At the very beginning, there is a the first of the blessing statements. Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. You have, uh, at the end, it's only blessed is he who heeds uh, the words of the prophecy. At the beginning, you have the three things, read, hear, and heed, or, uh, or guard, or keep the things that are written in it. Now, the word blessing is the Greek word makarios, and makarios, in some contexts, it can mean happy. Sometimes people translate that, happy is he who reads. And those who hear the words of the prophecy, I can't imagine somebody reading through all the judgments of the book of Revelation and is coming away from this and being happy. This is not a joyful book. This is not something to... Uh, the only joy here is that we see that God vindicates his name uh, in these end-time events and he is victorious, and for that we rejoice. But it is a joy that is uh, uh, realistic because it's a time of horror for those who have uh, rejected God and rejected 
uh, Christ during, and are alive during the tribulation period. So the word blessing, it doesn't really mean happy in this context. Uh, privileged, I think, is a better idea because as, the, as we read these statements, it's a promise of certain uh, extra uh, privileges or blessings, uh, benefits that come to those who have been obedient, those who are overcomers. Uh, it's not salvation. It is has to do with uh, blessings after or privileges that come to the obedient obedient believer. So this is a promise of a special blessing to those who read, hear, and uh, heed the promise. Now, the first is blessed is he who reads the words of this promise. And this is the Greek word anagonosko, which means to read publicly. In the early church, most of the leaders, most of the people in the early church uh, <clears throat> came out of a Jewish background, out of the synagogue where uh, the Torah was read publicly in the in the assembly. And uh, the people didn't have books. They didn't have their own copy of the scriptures like we do. And getting a codex or getting a, a, the, a scroll was very expensive. And so the scriptures were read out loud uh, to the congregation. So there's a blessing. Uh, to those who read and those who hear the words of the prophecy. And those are connected together, those who read and those who hear. So together as the pastor would read and the congregation would hear, that's a uh, blessing for both of those. But it's <clears throat> the blessing comes for those who heed the things that are written in it, who understand the warnings and pay attention to the warnings and realize that there's a future accountability because the time is near. This word that is translated uh, reading here is the same word that's translated in 1 Timothy 4.13, where Paul told Timothy, Till I come, give attention to reading. That's the public reading of Scripture. Scripture. That's not the exposition of Scripture, the teaching of Scripture. That's one of the reasons why on Sunday mornings, I always read, just have a time for reading the Scripture. It is a fulfillment of the uh, command here in 1 Timothy 4.13, uh, as well as many Old Testament passages, to give uh, attention to the public reading of Scripture. But it's not just reading and hearing. It's hearing in in. Scripture has the idea of hearing with a view towards obedience. It's not just getting your uh, auditory nerves stimulated or vibrated by sound. It is listening to and obeying uh, what has been read. James emphasizes this in James 1.22 and 1.25. Uh, Be doers of the word, that is, apply what you hear, and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer or an applier of the word, this one will be what? Blessed in what he does. So this is the same thing. Now, people say, well, wait a minute. There are many times when I didn't listen or I didn't obey and I blew it. Well, that's why we have passages like 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, that's a key uh, concept to always remember when we talk about these judgment passages because we all fail all the time. Whether they're big sins, little sins, whatever they are, everybody fails and the issue is cleansing and recovery as opposed to just forgetting God and uh, going on about your way. Now, the next blessing statement 
in Revelation is Revelation uh, 14, 13. Revelation 14, 13, and uh, John hears a voice from heaven. We're not told uh, who exactly is speaking in that passage, saying, Write. And what he is to write is, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. So this is the only blessing that is related to tribulation believers, tribulation martyrs. There's a blessing for those who die as believers in the tribulation period. Blessed are they who, the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, uh, for their deeds follow after them. Again, there's that emphasis on their application. That's what deeds are. Uh, it's not, uh, <clears throat> getting brownie points with God for his, for, for blessing. It is the result of application, uh, application of the Word. Then we have the third blessing statement in Revelation, Revelation 16:15. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Now, this is Jesus speaking. He's saying, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes. Now, who's he talking to? Is he talking to tribulation believers? Or is this a parenthetical aside in the middle of all these judgments where John sort of, or, or Jesus turns aside and he's addressing the John's current audience or church age believers. He's going through all of these different judgments that are coming up. And then there's a reminder in the middle of this that I'm coming like a thief. Do, do you expect a thief to come? No, you don't. You, you don't use, you, you're, you're in your house. You're dead asleep at night. I just heard about an 84 year old woman here in Spring Branch who was dead asleep at night. She walks with a walker and she heard somebody in her house. So she sort of fell out of bed. Uh, it was, a, of course, she wasn't expecting it. It was a surprise. She sort of fell out of bed because she can't walk real well, reached under the mattress, pulled out her pistol, and when the guy with his knife came into the bedroom, um, she shot him so that he will no longer propagate. And that was the end of, <laughs> that was the end of that. Not the end of his life, but the end of his line. And uh, <clears throat> so that was a surprise. That's how a thief comes. Now, when you have the book of Revelation, you have all these judgments that are going to come up before Jesus returns. It shouldn't be a surprise that Jesus comes back after the bowl judgments. It's not like a thief. Okay? So when you have this, this imagery used of a thief, this is an aside not to, uh, he's not talking about tribulation believers. He's reminding church age believers that remember, uh, there's judgment coming. Well, it may not be the judgment of the tribulation, but there's judgment coming. And this goes back to the same imagery in First Thess- uh, Thessalonians 5, 2 through 6. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Now, the day of the Lord refers to the entire period of judgments leading up to the uh, final intense period uh, that is also referred to as the day of the Lord. It refers to that seven-year tribulation period. The day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, now nobody's saying peace and safety at the end of the tribulation period. There is massive warfare. So this is talking about the period that, is, that precedes the tribulation period. When they say peace and safety, when man finally thinks he's going to have world, world peace, now world peace, 
at the end of, uh, near the end of the church age, then sudden destruction comes on them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. That whole imagery of labor pains you find in, Revel- in uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, various other prophets in the Old Testament that this is what characterizes that uh, final period of time that, is, that Daniel calls the worst period for Israel in all, all of their history. So those labor pains will come suddenly, but, but Paul says, you brethren are not in darkness that this day should overtake you as a thief. You're all sons of light, sons of the day. We're not of the night or of the darkness, so let's not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. See, carnal Christians are just asleep in Christ. Right? Okay, next blessing comes at the end of the tribulation period. It's a statement made by an angel after the return, at the time of the return of Christ. Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now the, the church age believe the church is the bride. The marriage supper celebrates the wedding of the bride to the groom, the Lord Jesus Christ, to the Lamb. And uh, those who are invited are believers who survived the tribulation uh, period and those who have received resurrection bodies. So there is a blessing for them. Uh, Revelation 20, verse 6, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part or a share, that is the inheritance, in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And then Revelation 22.7, our verse, Behold, Jesus said, I'm coming quickly, uh, rapidly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. And then at the end, in verse 14, Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life. Now, we're going to get into this more next time, next Tuesday night. But remember, the tree of life first appears in Genesis 2. God puts the tree of life in the Garden of Eden and the tree of the knowledge of, uh, of, of good and evil. Now, we don't have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil show up again, but the tree of life shows up in the new heavens and the new earth. And it, back in Revelation chapter 3, um, or, or excuse me, Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, at the end of the first letter to the church of Ephesus, there's the promise to the overcomer that the overcomer will have access to the tree of life. This is a special privilege or blessing to overcomer believers during the, uh, <clears throat> when they are in the, the, uh, New Jerusalem. So this isn't a, uh, access for every Everyone, it is access as a reward for a privilege or blessing for those who are overcomer believers. But we'll get into that more uh, next time. Now, after John has heard this uh, interjection by the Lord Jesus Christ that he's coming quickly and the blessing, blessing for those who keep, that is, those who uh, respond to and apply the word of the prophecy of the book, John falls down again. Um, and he is going to worship uh, God this time. In Revelation 19.10, he made the mistake of falling down to worship the angel. Now he's um, uh, not going to worship the angel, but he's going to um, still get rebuked because he shouldn't be falling down at the feet of the angel. He says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. 
He hasn't really mentioned himself with the first person singular since the beginning of the book. He says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to the worship at the feet of the angel. Now, he's not saying he's worshiping the angel, but he falls down to worship, and the angel is going to rebuke him in verse 9, just as he got uh, corrected back in chapter 19, verse 10, after the blessing statement there, 19.9, verse 10, Then I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, that is, the angel said, Don't do that. In other words, stop it. I am a fellow servant of yours. Angels are not to be worshipped. This is another indication that Jesus... Uh, Jesus claimed deity, knew he was claiming deity because he accepted the worship of the disciples. But no other servant of God, no prophet, no angel anywhere in the Bible ever accepted worship. How in the world could these God-fearing, religiously observant Jews like John and Peter, especially Peter, and and uh, many of the other disciples have have not understood the deity of Christ. They are worshiping Christ, and but they understood that Jesus Christ is one with God. As the as the uh, in fact, I just received a copy. Got a new copy of the of the uh, uh, Tanakh, which is the um, uh, Jewish Publication Society uh, Old Testament. And Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4, which is one of the um, key verses for, for Jews, um, uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is, and I think New American Standard, some other translations say the Lord is one. Um, but in, um, it's either in the modern Tanakh or the 1918 version, I think it's the modern one, says, has the idea that Lord is, um, the Lord is unique. That's the idea. Uh, and that's exactly right. The Lord is, is unique. It's, it's not one in a singularity, but it is a plurality within the Godhead, a plurality of personality, which is clear. You have various passages in Isaiah, Jeremiah that talk about God on the one hand, his spirit, his servant, all of whom are, are worshiped. We've gone over those passages before. So, the fact that you have these uh, religious Jews, Peter, John, James, and they're worshiping Jesus shows that they don't see a violation of the first commandment is to have no other gods, uh, no other gods but the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus is the Son of God. So, uh, Revelation 19.10 he falls at his feet, at the feet of the angel, but the angel rebukes him. And in verse 9 says, uh, he says, the angel said to him, don't do that. I am a fellow servant of yours. Again, emphasizing I'm a creature like you're a creature. We both serve God. I'm a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, that it would include Old Testament prophets as well as those who've written in the New Testament, and of those who heed the words of this book. So I'm a fellow servant of those who are serving God by obeying the words of this book. And then he commands him to worship God. That is the focal point. We are to worship God. This is one of the major themes that we've seen in Revelation. And in Revelation 4.11, as we had that wonderful uh, throne room scene 
where the angels and the four living creatures are before the throne of God. They, what they are saying to God is, Worthy, O you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. So the focal point is creation. That's why creation is a critical doctrine. It's not just some secondary thing out there that we can set aside because uh, somebody came along and said, that, well, God didn't create things, everything just sort of happened by chance. You can't sacrifice the creation doctrine of the Old Testament without sacrificing the creator God of the Old Testament, and uh, this, because this is the basis of why he's worshipped. It's not just here in Revelation, it's also throughout the Old Testament. He's worshipped because he created us. Revelation uh, 22.10 then says, uh, the angel says to uh, to John, and goes on to say, and don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is ingus, the time is at hand, the time is near. There's an immediacy here. Don't close it up. Don't lock it up. Uh, the idea here is that it's supposed to be understood. How many people have read Revelation, scratched their head? Martin Luther did. He said, you know, there's this curse at the end of the book, and I don't understand it. I'm not sure it should be in the Bible. Because if I'm cursed for mishandling it, why should I put it in the Bible? So he had his doubts. Many other people down through history have had their uh, been confused about the book of book of Revelation, but it's written to be understood. It's written to be clear. And if you are a student of the Old Testament prophets, uh, then the book of Revelation begins to be clear because all of the imagery, all of the uh, types and all of the uh, visions and everything all go back to Zechariah, to Jeremiah, to Daniel. And if you understand those, you can understand Revelation. And, um, and the contrast here is between Revelation 22.10, which says, don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, and Daniel chapter 12, uh, verse 4. Daniel 12.4 says, but as for, uh, as for you, Daniel... Uh, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. So Daniel's told, okay, I've given you all of these prophecies. You've got the image in Daniel 2. You've got the four creatures that come up in Daniel 5 and and the uh, imagery of the little goat in Daniel 7. You've got the vision of the chronology of Daniel 70 weeks in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel 11, you have the prophecies related to the Antichrist. And then Daniel 12 comes along and God says, okay, Seal it up because nobody can understand it yet. You can't understand it yet. Daniel covered so much territory time-wise from the Babylonian Empire to the revived Roman Empire, the tribulation, the end times, everything. But the keys to understanding what Daniel was saying weren't there yet. That was only one or a lot of pieces of the puzzle, but it was still incomplete. It needed to be... Um, uh, be uh, aided by more revelation, Joel, um, Zechariah, Zephaniah, uh, and then New Testament passages as well, including the book of Revelation. So Daniel's told to seal up the book until the end of time. It's not going to be clear until you get to the near the end of time how these things are going to play out. Now, once you get to the end of time, which really relates to the whole church age period that you have enough information through the revelation of scripture to begin to understand what is, excuse me, what is said here. 
Now, what's interesting is the verses that immediately precede Daniel 12.4. And Daniel, that first verse should be labeled Daniel 12.1. Daniel 12.1 and 2. Now, this is addressed to the to the Jews, to the Israelites, the Jewish people at the end of the, uh, of the exile period. And <clears throat> Daniel writes and he says, at that time, that is at this future time that he's been talking about at the end of chapter 11, which is the tribulation period, he says, at that time, the great prince Michael, Michael the archangel, who stands besides the son of, sons of your people, one of Michael's roles is to protect uh, the Jewish people, to protect Israel. He stands beside the sons of your people. He will appear, and it will be a time of trouble. Now, I made it a point to take this out of the Tanakh. This is not a New American Standard, New King James, or uh, this is the, uh, uh, the, the Jewish Publication Society uh, Hebrew Old Testament translated into English. At that time, the great Prince Michael, who stands beside the sons of your people, will appear. It will be a time of trouble, the like of which has never been since the nation came into being. Now, that's the same thing that Jesus quotes in in Matthew 24 when he says, regarding the last part of the tribulation period, that it's a time of, of violence and a time of war, unlike any time in human history. And so Daniel talks about this future time of trouble, the like of which has never been since the nation came into being. And he says, at that time, your people will be rescued. There is a deliverance that occurs at the end of the tribulation period. We believe Jesus will return at that time, and he delivers uh, the remnant of Israel during the tribulation period from the assaults of the Antichrist. And then there's judgment. Many of those, Daniel says, many of those that sleep in the dust of the earth, that is, the dead will awake, some to eternal life, others to reproaches, to uh, everlasting abhorrence. So Daniel points out there is also judgment coming. There's a resurrection of the dead, some, and he's talking about the Jewish dead. He's talking to the uh, Israelites here. He says there will be a resurrection, some to uh, everlasting life, and some to everlasting judgment. Now, we come then to verse 11. Now, verse 11 is going to be a little bit, uh, is a verse that seems a little confusing to a lot of people, but it really isn't. There are three categories of people mentioned here, or actually four categories of people that are mentioned here. The one who does wrong, the one who is filthy, those first two are uh, negative, the next two are positive, the one who is righteous, and the one who is holy. Now, now, we could look at this and say, okay, this is talking about unbelievers and believers. The unbelievers are wrongdoers, they're unrighteous, and they're filthy, meaning uh, uh, spiritually impure. And the righteous and the holy relates to positional righteousness or holiness. But that misses the point. The point here is that he's dealing with reward and judgment, again, for believers. This whole section here is addressed to church-age believers, and what he says is he's addressing believers, those who are obedient and those who are disobedient. Now, the obedient believers are the ones who, even though they sin, even though they fail, they have cleansing from sin because of uh, 1 John 1, 9, because they confess their sins, and they are cleansed. Those who are unrighteous, are the ones who stay in their sin. 
let the one who does wrong still do wrong. Let the one who is filthy still be filthy, the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. What Jesus is saying here is, okay, you've made a decision to be one way. Okay, you're going to continue that way. It's your decision. This is one of those great passages on individual responsibility. If you want to be one way, you can be that way. You'll, you'll work it out in your life. If you're going to make this a decision to be unrighteous, then you're going to live your life in an unrighteous manner. If you're going to make a decision to practice righteousness, then you'll live your life that way. Now, we look at these uh, four words. Adikao is a really interesting word. It's found in, it means unrighteous, dikeo from the Greek word meaning righteous or I am just, I am righteous. Uh, the alpha prefix is a negative. We find this word, the noun form of this word, in an interesting place in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all adike, all unrighteousness. So we're cleansed from all unrighteousness when we confess our sins. Later on in 1 John 5, John says that all adike is sin. All unrighteousness is sin. And so what happens is whenever we sin there and we confess it, there is complete cleansing. But there are those who never confess sin. They never admit to wrongdoing. And there is uh, no cleansing for them. And so these are the ones who are, who are in the first Two categories. Those who are righteous, those who are holy, or those <clears throat> relate to uh, growing, maturing uh, believers. They may be babies growing and maturing. They may be uh, more mature, but they are, it's dealing with practical or experiential righteousness and righteousness and justice. I mean, righteousness and, and holiness. The point of all of this is that Jesus is again challenging church age believers that he is coming to reward us verse 12 says behold i'm coming quickly my reward is with me see that's the context it's not talking about salvation here it's talking about reward behold i'm coming quickly my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his his work and we have to remember reward is based on work but salvation is free in verse 17, as I wrap up here, verse 17 says, "Let at the end, let him who thirsts come, whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Salvation is free, but rewards are based on uh, performance. So next time we'll come back and get into this next little section in verses 12 uh, down through 17, which deals with this, this final um, uh, section challenging uh, uh, believers in terms of uh, obedience and reward, and then we'll wrap up. We just might come to a conclusion next time. Don't hold your breath. It may take two more times, but we're we're getting close. Bruce, got a question? Yes. Okay. I, uh, I've heard you twice go over uh, verse six twenty two six, mm-hmm. and I, I haven't heard you clarify yet. Whether it's takus or ingus is used. Yeah, it's takus. It's takus. Thank you. Right. Thank you. It comes. It comes quickly. Things which must quickly take place. Okay. Let's close in prayer.
Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to study, study your word, to focus on these things, to be reminded that you could come at any moment, that uh, even if you don't come at any moment, you could come for us individually at any moment, and we could uh, die tonight, die tomorrow, die the next day. We need to be ready. First and foremost, we need to be right with you in terms of salvation. And second, we need to make sure that we are uh, keeping short accounts in terms of sin, that we are growing, maturing, confessing sin, being cleansed of sin, that we might be adequately prepared and ready uh, for uh, final accounting. Father, we pray that you challenge us with what we studied tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.